0: Welcome back to Nudie Reads, a classic podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour and you're welcome to listen along. It's Sunday and that means I'm reading a classic. Thursdays are for offbeat stuff, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Before I get to tonight's classic, A word of thanks to all you wonderful listeners who emailed me to let me know I made an upload mistake on Thursday night. I re-uploaded Robin Hood when I should have uploaded The Past is a Foreign Country, so for a few days many were wondering what was going on. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, as did Mother, who was furious. I'm kidding, she wasn't furious but she did say I must apologise, so here goes all you listeners. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. It won't happen again. Tonight I am reading a maligned classic, maligned by translators, lovers of art, historians, and especially by Venetians. I am reading from Giorgio Vasari's The Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors and Architects, the world's first encyclopedia of art, specifically Italian art, published in 1550 and again in an updated version in 1568. That later version placated the Venetians because Giorgio Vasari, the author, left them out of the first edition. He wrote a gigantic book called Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors and Architects and it didn't have Titian in it. Honestly, I love the Tuscans, but they are even today the most one-eyed people in all of Italy. Vasari's The Lives, as it is known in shorthand, is maligned by translators for being almost unreadable in parts. So, drowning in hyperbole and grammatical flourishes, as Vasari champions sundry artists. It is maligned by art lovers who object to Vasari's neglect of other parts of Europe, particularly the Dutch and German geniuses who were present in the 15th and 16th centuries and which Vasari surely must have known. And it is maligned by historians because Vasari gets lots of factual information about artists quite wrong. So how can it remain a classic with all those flaws? Well, for two reasons. First, because it's the first collection of art biographies ever created, and this happened in the 16th century in Italy, where, shall we say, there was rather a lot of art going on. Not only does Vasari detail the lives of the artists, he addresses particular paintings and works. So it's a fantastic resource. And second, because Vasari put some thought into his collection and he observed that the period of all this great art was a break from an earlier, rougher, less attractive medieval art period to a more classically beautiful art period. A rinascita, a renaissance. Giorgio Vasari's work is the reason we think of the Renaissance periods of history even today. The period of rebirth, of ideals of perfection from an ancient classical age. And The Lives was a hit from the minute it was published. It was translated across Europe, and you can imagine why. Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Brunelleschi, Donatello, Giotto, Mantegna, etc., Vasari wrote about them all. I'm going to read Vasari's Life of Leonardo da Vinci, from a 1912 translation to English, and I'm going to abridge a bit for time. But see how many of da Vinci's works you recognize. Let's begin. The greatest gifts are often seen in the course of nature, reigned by celestial influences on human creatures and sometimes in supernatural fashion, beauty, grace, and talent are united beyond measure in one single person. This was seen by all mankind in Leonardo da Vinci, in whom there was an infinite grace in all his actions, and so great was his genius and such its growth, that to whatever difficulties he turned his mind, he solved them with ease. In him was great bodily strength, joined to dexterity, with a spirit and courage ever royal and magnanimous, and the fame of his name so increased that not only in his lifetime was he held in esteem, but his reputation became even greater among posterity after his death. Truly marvellous and celestial was Leonardo, the son of Ser Piero da Vinci, And in learning and in the rudiments of letters, he would have made great proficiency if he had not been so variable and unstable, for he set himself to learn many things, and then, after having begun them, abandoned them. Thus, in arithmetic, during the few months that he studied it, he made so much progress that, by continually suggesting doubts and difficulties to the master who was teaching him, he would often bewilder him he gave some little attention to music, and quickly resolved to learn to play the lyre, as one who had by nature a spirit most lofty and full of refinement, wherefore he sang divinely to that instrument, improvising upon it. Nonetheless, although he occupied himself with such a variety of things, he never ceased drawing and working in relief, pursuits which suited his fancy more than any other. Ser Piero, having observed this, and having considered the loftiness of his intellect, one day took some of his drawings and carried them to Andrea del Verrocchio, who was much his friend, and besought him straightly to tell him whether Leonardo, by devoting himself to drawing, would make any proficiency. Andrea was astonished to see the extraordinary beginnings of Leonardo, and urged Ser Piero that he should make him study it wherefore he arranged with Leonardo that he should enter the workshop of Andrea, which Leonardo did with the greatest willingness in the world. And he practised not one branch of art only, but all those in which drawing played a part, and having an intellect so divine and marvellous that he was also an excellent geometrician, he not only worked in sculpture, making in his youth in clay some heads of women that are smiling, of which plaster casts are still taken, and likewise some heads of boys which appeared to have issued from the hand of a master. But in architecture also, he made many drawings, both of ground plans and of other designs of buildings, and he was the first, although but a youth, who suggested the plan of reducing the river Arno to a navigable canal from Pisa to Florence. He made designs of flour mills and engines, which might be driven by the force of water, and since he wished that his profession should be painting, he studied much in drawing after nature, and sometimes in making models of figures in clay, over which he would lay soft pieces of cloth, dipped in clay, and then set himself patiently to draw them. He was so pleasing in conversation that he attracted to himself the hearts of men. And although he possessed, one might say, nothing, and worked little, he always kept servants and horses, in which latter he took much delight, and particularly in all other animals, which he managed with the greatest love and patience. And this he showed when often passing by the places where birds were sold, for taking them with his own hand out of their cages, and having paid to those who sold them the price that they asked, he let them fly away into the air, restoring to them their lost liberty. He was placed then, as has been said, in his boyhood at the instance of Ser Piero to learn art with Andrea del Verrocchio, who was making a panel picture of St. John baptizing Christ, when Leonardo painted an angel who was holding some garments, and although he was but a lad, Leonardo executed it in such a manner that his angel was much better than the figures of Andrea, which was the reason that Andrea would never again touch colour in disdain that a child should know more than he. Leonardo made a picture of Our Lady, a most excellent work, which was in the possession of Pope Clement Seventh, and among other things painted therein, he counterfeited a glass vase full of water, containing some flowers, in which, besides its marvellous naturalness, he had imitated the dewdrops on the flowers, so that it seemed more real than the reality. The fancy came to him to paint a picture in oils of the head of a Medusa, with the head attired with a coil of snakes, the most strange and extravagant invention that could ever be imagined. But since it was a work that took time, it remained unfinished, as happened with almost all his things. It is an extraordinary thing how that genius, in his desire to give the highest relief to the works that he made, went so far with dark shadows in order to find the darkest possible grounds that he sought for blacks which might make deeper shadows and be darker than other blacks, that by their means he might make his lights the brighter. And in the end, this method turned out so dark that no light remaining there, his pictures had rather the character of things made to represent an effect of night than the clear quality of daylight, which all came from seeking to give greater relief and to achieve the final perfection of art. He was so delighted when he saw certain bizarre heads of men with the beard or hair growing naturally. That he would follow one that pleased him a whole day, and so treasured him up in idea that afterwards, on arriving home, he drew him as if he had had him in his presence. Of this sort there are many heads to be seen, both of women and of men, and I have several of them drawn by his hand with the pen. Such was that of Amerigo Vespucci, which is a very beautiful head of an old man drawn with charcoal and likewise that of scaramuccia captain of the gipsies it came to pass that giovan galeazzo duke of milan being dead and lodovico sforza raised to the same rank in the year fourteen ninety four leonardo was summoned to milan the duke hearing the marvellous discourse of leonardo became so enamoured of his genius that it was something incredible and he prevailed upon him by entreaties to paint an altar panel containing a nativity which was sent by the Duke to the Emperor. He also painted in Milan for the Friars of Saint Dominic at Santa Maria delle Grazie a last supper, a most beautiful and marvellous thing, and to the heads of the Apostles he gave such majesty and beauty that he left the head of Christ unfinished not believing that he was able to give it that divine air which is essential to the image of Christ. This work remaining thus all but finished has ever been held by the Milanese in the greatest veneration, and also by strangers as well, for Leonardo imagined and succeeded in expressing that anxiety which had seized the apostles in wishing to know who should betray their master for which reason in all their faces are seen love, fear and wrath, or rather sorrow, at not being able to understand the meaning of Christ, which thing excites no less marvel than the sight, in contrast to it, of obstinacy, hatred and treachery in Judas. Not to mention that every least part of the work displays an incredible diligence, seeing that even in the tablecloth the texture of the stuff is counterfeited in such a manner that linen itself could not seem more real. It is said that the prior of that place kept pressing Leonardo in a most importunate manner to finish the work, for it seemed strange to him to see Leonardo sometimes stand half a day at a time lost in contemplation, and he would have liked him to go on, like the labourers hoeing in his garden without ever stopping his brush and not content with this he complained of it to the duke and that so warmly that he was constrained to send for leonardo and delicately urged him to work contriving nevertheless to show him that he was doing all this because of the importunity of the prior leonardo knowing that the intellect of that prince was acute and discerning Was pleased to discourse at large with the Duke on the subject, a thing which he had never done with the prior. And he reasoned much with him about art, and made him understand that men of lofty genius sometimes accomplish the most when they work the least, seeking out inventions with the mind, and forming those perfect ideas which the hands afterwards express and reproduce from the images already conceived in the brain. And he added that two heads were still waiting for him to paint. That of Christ, which he did not wish to seek on earth, and he could not think that it was possible to conceive in the imagination that beauty and heavenly grace which should be the mark of God incarnate. Next, there was wanting that of Judas, which was also troubling him, not thinking himself capable of imagining features that should represent the countenance of him who, after so many benefits received, had a mind so cruel as to resolve to betray his lord, the creator of the world. However, he would seek out a model for the latter, but if in the end he could not find a better, he should not want that of the importunate and tactless prior. This thing moved the duke wondrously to laughter, and he said that Leonardo had a thousand reasons on his side. And so the poor prior, in confusion, confined himself to urging on the work in the garden and left Leonardo in peace, who finished only the head of Judas, which seems the very embodiment of treachery and inhumanity, but that of Christ, as has been said, remained unfinished. The nobility of this picture, both because of its design and from its having been wrought from an incomparable diligence, awoke a desire in the King of France to transport it into his kingdom. Wherefore he tried by all possible means to discover whether there were architects who, with cross stays of wood and iron, might have been able to make it so secure that it might be transported safely. Without considering any expense that might have been involved thereby, so much did he desire it. But the fact of its being painted on the wall robbed his majesty of his desire, and the picture remained with the Milanese. While he was engaged on this work, he proposed to the Duke to make a horse in bronze of a marvellous greatness in order to place upon it as a memorial the image of the Duke. And on so vast a scale did he begin it and continue it that it could never be completed and there are those who have been of the opinion, so various and so often malign out of envy other the judgments of men, that he began it with no intention of finishing it, because, being of so great a size, an incredible difficulty was encountered in seeking to cast it in one piece. And it might also be believed that, from the result, many may have formed such a judgment, since many of his works have remained unfinished and indeed those who saw the great model that Leonardo made in clay vow that they have never seen a more beautiful thing or a more superb, and it was preserved until the French came to Milan with King Louis of France and broke it all to pieces. Lost also is a little model of it in wax, which was held to be perfect, together with a book on the anatomy of the horse made by him by way of study. He then applied himself, but with greater care, to the anatomy of man, assisted by and in turn assisting in this research, Marcantonio de la Torre, an excellent philosopher who was then lecturing at Pavia, and who wrote of this matter. And he was one of the first, as I have heard tell, that began to illustrate the problems of medicine with the doctrine of Galen, and to throw true light on anatomy which up to that time had been wrapped in the thick and gross darkness of ignorance. And in this he found marvellous aid in the brain, work, and hand of Leonardo, who made a book drawn in red chalk and annotated with the pen of the bodies that he dissected with his own hand, and drew with the greatest diligence. Wherein he showed all the frame of the bones, and then added to them, in order, all the nerves, and covered them with muscles. The first attached to the bone, the second that hold the body firm, and the third that move it. And beside them, part by part, he wrote in letters of an ill shaped character, that he made with the left hand backwards. And whoever is not practised in reading them cannot understand them, since they are not to be read save with a mirror. And to return to the works of Leonardo, there came to Milan in his time the King of France, wherefore Leonardo, being asked to devise some bizarre thing, made a lion, which walked several steps, and then opened its breast and showed it full of lilies. Leonardo undertook to execute for Francesco del Giocondo, the portrait of Monalisa, His wife, and after toiling over it for four years, he left it unfinished, and the work is now in the collection of King Francis of France at Fontainebleau. In this head, whoever wished to see how closely art could imitate nature was able to comprehend it with ease, for in it were counterfeited all the minutenesses that, with subtlety, are able to be painted seeing that the eyes had that luster and watery sheen which are always seen in life, and around them were all those rosy and pearly tints, as well as the lashes, which cannot be represented without the greatest subtlety. The eyebrows, through his having shown the manner in which the hairs spring from the flesh, here more close and here more scanty, and curve according to the pores of the skin, could not be more natural. The nose, with its beautiful nostrils, rosy and tender, appeared to be alive. The mouth, with its opening and with its ends united by the red of the lips, to the flesh tints of the face, seemed in truth to be not colours but flesh. In the pit of the throat, if one gazed upon it intently, could be seen the beating of the pulse. And indeed it may be said that it was painted in such a manner As to make every valiant craftsman, be he who he may, tremble and lose heart. He made use also of this device. Mona Lisa being very beautiful, he always employed, while he was painting her portrait, persons to play or sing, and jesters who might make her remain merry, in order to take away that melancholy which painters are often wont to give to the portraits that they paint and in this work of Leonardo's there was a smile so pleasing that it was a thing more divine than human to behold, and it was held to be something marvellous, since the reality was not more alive. By reason then of the excellence of the works of this most divine craftsman, his fame had so increased that all persons who took delight in art, nay the whole city of Florence, Desired that he should leave them some memorial, and it was being proposed everywhere that he should be commissioned to execute some great and notable work, whereby the Commonwealth might be honoured and adorned by the great genius, grace, and judgment that was seen in the works of Leonardo. And it was decided that, the great council chamber having been newly built, that Leonardo should be given some beautiful work to paint wherein he designed a group of horsemen who were fighting for a standard, a work that was held to be very excellent and of great mastery, by reason of the marvellous ideas that he had in composing that battle. Seeing that in it rage, fury and revenge are perceived as much in the men as in the horses, among which two with the forelegs interlocking are fighting no less fiercely with their teeth than those who are riding them do in fighting for that standard. It is not possible to describe the invention that Leonardo showed in the garments of the soldiers, all varied by him in different ways, and likewise in the helmet crests and other ornaments, not to mention the incredible mastery that he displayed in the forms and lineaments of the horses, which Leonardo, with their fiery spirit, muscles and shapely beauty, drew better than any other master. It is said that in order to draw that cartoon, he made a most ingenious stage, which was raised by contracting it and lowered by expanding. And conceiving the wish to colour on the wall in oils, he made a composition of so gross an admixture to act as a binder on the wall that, going on to paint it in the said hall, it began to peel off in such a manner that in a short time he abandoned it, seeing it spoiling. He went to Rome with Duke Giuliano de' Medici at the election of Pope Leo, who spent much of his time on philosophical studies, and particularly on alchemy where forming a paste of a certain kind of wax, as he walked he shaped animals very thin and full of wind, and by blowing into them, made them fly through the air. But when the wind ceased, they fell to the ground. On the back of a most bizarre lizard, found by the vine dresser of the Belvedere, he fixed with a mixture of quicksilver, wings composed of scales, stripped from other lizards which, as it walked, quivered with the motion, and having given it eyes, horns, and beard, taming it and keeping it in a box, he made all his friends to whom he showed it fly for fear. He used often to have the guts of a castrated ram, completely freed of their fat and cleaned, and thus made so fine that they could have been held in the palm of the hand, and having placed a pair of blacksmith's bellows in another room, he fixed to them one end of these, and blowing into them, filled the room, which was very large, so that whoever was in it was obliged to retreat into a corner, showing how transparent and full of wind, from taking up little space at the beginning, they had come to occupy much, and likening them to virtue he made an infinite number of such follies, and gave his attention to mirrors, and he tried the strangest methods in seeking out oils for painting, and varnish for preserving works when painted. There was very great disdain between Michelangelo Buonarroti and him, on account of which Michelangelo departed from Florence, with the excuse of Duke Giuliano, having been summoned by the Pope to the competition for the façade of San Lorenzo. Leonardo, understanding this, departed and went into France, where the king, having had his works by his hand, bore him great affection, and he desired that he should colour the cartoon of Saint Anne. But Leonardo, according to his custom, put him off for a long time with words. Finally, having grown old, He remained ill many months, and feeling himself near to death, asked to have himself diligently informed of the teaching of the Catholic faith, and of the good way and holy Christian religion. And then, with many moans, he confessed and was penitent. And although he could not raise himself well on his feet, supporting himself on the arms of his friends and servants, he was pleased to take devoutly the most holy sacrament out of his bed. The king, who was wont often and lovingly to visit him, then came into the room. Wherefore he, out of reverence, having raised himself to sit up on the bed, giving him an account of his sickness and the circumstances of it, showed withal how much he had offended God and mankind in not having worked at his art as he should have done. Thereupon he was seized by a paroxysm, the messenger of death for which reason the king having risen and having taken his head, in order to assist him and show him favour, in the end that he might alleviate his pain, his spirit which was divine, knowing that it could not have any greater honour, expired in the arms of the king, in the seventy-fifth year of his age. The loss of Leonardo grieved beyond measure all those who had known him, since there was never any one who did so much honour to painting. With the splendour of his aspect, which was very beautiful, he made serene every broken spirit, and with his words he turned to yea or nay every obdurate intention. By his physical force he could restrain any outburst of rage, and with his right hand he twisted the iron ring of a doorbell or a horseshoe as if it were lead. With his liberality he would assemble together and support his every friend, poor or rich, if only he had intellect and worth. He adorned and honoured in every action, no matter what mean and bare dwelling. Wherefore, in truth, Florence received a very great gift in the birth of Leonardo, and an incalculable loss in his death. In the art of painting, he added to the manner of colouring in oils a certain obscurity whereby the moderns have given great force and relief to their figures. And in statuary, he proved his worth in the three figures of bronze that are over the door of San Giovanni, on the side towards the north, executed by Giovanni Francesco Rustici, but contrived with the advice of Leonardo, which are the most beautiful pieces of casting, the best designed. And the most perfect that have as yet been seen in modern days. By Leonardo, we have the anatomy of the horse, and that of man, even more complete. And so, on account of all his qualities, so many and so divine, although he worked much more by words than by deeds, his name and fame can never be extinguished. And that's where we'll leave it tonight. Isn't that beautiful? A wonderful 16th century picture of Leonardo da Vinci, and so interesting in the choice of works to cover, because Vasari did not cover all of Leonardo's works, he has only chosen a few to pull out here and there. I find it particularly interesting for the reference to da Vinci's Medusa. It's lost to us, but Caravaggio Would have read Vasari's The Lives. He would have learned about da Vinci's Medusa from this Vasari entry in The Lives. Maybe he saw it, I don't know, but Caravaggio's Medusa is a famous, famous painting, an incredible vision of the snake headed woman. So is it a copy of Leonardo or inspired by da Vinci? No one knows for sure, but I like to think it's one of many legacies of Vasari's work. And what about the giant horse, Da Vinci's Gran Cavallo that was never built? Well, it has been built by a sculptor, Nina Akamu. You should Google it; it's fantastic, as is all of Da Vinci's work. I don't have a favorite piece because it is all outstanding. I love everything that he did. Now Vasari was not so talented as an artist. But I think he is overly maligned for the lives he loved his subject matter, and it shows. I mean, you should read the life of Michelangelo. It's more a hagiography than a biography. But the point is, Vasari was collecting together fascinating details for all of us to enjoy about these genius artists to make them all very human and very relatable. We simply can't understand all that art. Without Vasari, he sets the roadmap for all his flaws and he did us all a great favour putting together this classic work. Do delve into Vasari's The Lives if you can. It's flowery and flawed but fabulous. Okay, I'll be back on Thursday 9pm Sydney time with something offbeat and I wish you all a great week. Can I top the Bailey Ball of last week? Tune in to listen. And do please keep sharing Nudie Reads. And if you are able to leave a written review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice, do please do so. They really help the podcast to grow. Till next time then, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to Nudie Reads.